Well, good morning, City Light. My name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's so good to be with you this morning to worship Jesus and um, hear from His Word uh, and praise Him in song. Uh, last week, we got the opportunity to hear from Ben, and he did an incredible job of showing us how Jesus was betrayed by someone close to him, but also was, be- was denied by those who were closest to him as well. And yet, in the midst of all of those things, Jesus maintained control and was in control of the situation itself. And so today, we're actually going to continue on with Jesus' last 24 hours of his life. And so we're going to pick it back up in John 18, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll start in verse 28. But, but first, I want to ask a question. Have you ever done something wrong and yet got away with it while others were punished for it? Well, yeah, I have. I've done that. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I happened to be one of my few friends who actually owned my own car. I had a 1977 Ford LTD. If you don't, don't know anything about that car, it's probably about the size of one row of seats. It was humongous. There was about 10 high school students could fit in there. Literally, we did that. We drove around that way. And so um, I was the, kind of the designated driver for everybody to get around town and stuff like that. And so uh, one evening, I went to a friend's house. And he just so happened to have uh, one of his um, relatives visit him who's in his mid-20s. And so I'm hanging out with my friend and uh, his relative comes in that night and opens up his shirt and drops cash on the table. And so when he does this, I'm like, wow, that's a lot of money. I wonder how I can get some of that. Um, poor kid syndrome. So you always just think, how can I get more money? Uh, but anyway, so he drops the cash on the table and I'm like, man, what, what happened? And my friend tells me, he says, well, he uh, went down to the gas station down the street and by knife point, which is beyond me, robbed the store. And so he had, he had taken money from the gas station and, and brought it. And so subsequent after that, this guy actually went to the gas stations that were within walking distance of my friend's house and robbed them by knife point as the week went on. And as that went on, I, me, again, being a poor kid, thinking that I need to make more money, was thinking, well, how can I be a part of that? Well, the way I could be a part of that, they let me know one evening, would be to drive them to a gas station. I was like, oh, I got a car. I can do that. And as long as I'm not in the store, it's not a big deal. And so, being the smart kid I am, we figured out a plan. And so we, uh, we drove to a gas station that was still fairly nearby, and we, we parked at an apartment complex across the street. And while I'm parked in the car, the guy gets out and goes to the gas station. And I'm sitting there and, and talking to my friend and mulling it over, and I just get this gut feeling. This, I'm in trouble right now. I, I, I'm in trouble. And so I, I told my friend, I said, hey, here's the keys. When he gets out, you drive and come pick me up. I'm going to take a walk. I just don't feel right right now. So I get out of the car. I walk down the street. And not too long after that, uh, they come speeding down the street, and they pick me up. I take over in the driver's seat. And so we drive around the neighborhood for a while because, you know, I'm smart. I'm thinking, police are probably showing up at the gas station. I don't want to pull out while they're in there. And so we're just going to wait a while. So we drive around the neighborhood for a while. And then finally, we're like, all right. They have to be gone by now. So we pull out of the neighborhood, come to the stop sign, and sure enough, a suburban SUV police car starts driving down the street. And we let them go by, and I turn right, and I look in my rearview mirror like I typically do. And um, I saw an SUV do the hardest U-turn I have ever seen in my life. That thing almost flipped over. It tipped it tipped when it was turning. Like, it was so hard. And so naturally, what you do, your instinct is... Push the gas pedal and try to run, after, run away from them, right? Yeah, that's real smart. So I, I 
jet off in my car, and it had a little bit of heat on it, all right? That thing could go a little bit. It had 85 on the odometer. Um, and so we go down the street, uh, and we finally pull into the driveway of my house, and two minutes later, squad cars are pulling up with their lights flashing, okay? So we're sitting in the car, and we're thinking, well, of course we have to come up with a lie. And so we get out. The inspector arrives. My mom bless her soul, came out. She's like, what is going on? Why are the police here? My dad's hiding somewhere. Um, and we're just trying to figure out what's, they're just, she's just trying to figure out what's going on. The inspector comes, notices the guy's shoes, matches the shoes that he saw on film. They take all three of us, put us in cuffs, and put us in three individual squad cars and take us downtown. So while we're downtown, I'm in handcuffs. They bring me into the building and Again, by God's grace, my mother came with me. Thank you, Mom. Um, we go into these places. They put us in three separate rooms to ask questions of us, okay? And as they're asking questions, of course, I'm going to lie, right? Like, that's our instinct. Like, we're not like Jesus. We're Jesus, man. When they were coming to get him, to arrest him, he just stood up and said, hey, I'm the dude that you're looking for. No, I wasn't going to tell them that. So uh, we told a lie for a while, but then the investigator left, and my mom's sitting there. She's like, there's something not right about your story. And so by God's grace, mom was like, you need to tell him everything that happened. Tell him the truth. And so I, the investigator came back in, and, and I told him everything that happened. I told him the entire story of what had taken place that night. And after telling him that, uh, my friend spent the next two years of his life in um, juvenile detention center. And then the other guy got 10 years actually added to his, his deal because he actually had some prior warrants for his arrest as well. And somehow, some way. For some reason, I walked out innocent even though I was guilty. And so in today's passage, Jesus is put on trial, and he goes in as an innocent man, but ultimately his sentence was guilty. And so my first point is religious hands charged an innocent man. Let's pick it up in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, they being the religious leaders, so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So after what we saw last week, the religious leaders had this trumped-up trial. They decided to take Jesus and bring him before Pilate, who's the governor and judge over their region, right? And, and, and they took him to him for a specific reason. They wanted Jesus to die. So they, it wasn't good enough that Jesus would go to jail for, uh, for whatever crime they were claiming that he had. No, they wanted him to be put to death. And, and it wasn't lawful for anyone other than a Roman official to put someone to death. Like, they couldn't put anyone to death. So they, so they brought Jesus under false pretenses so that the Romans could murder him. And so the crazy thing about all of this is that, that these men wanted to spill the blood of Jesus, but weren't willing to get their hands dirty in the process. Like, they weren't even willing to step foot into, uh, into Pilate's house because they thought, man, I'm going to miss out on the Passover parties that's going on. It's going to defile me. And so instead of getting their hands dirty, they're sending this Jesus to be killed, the purest form of innocence that you could ever find on the planet. And, and so when you see that, you see these men and their religiosity turn on itself. 
They, they, they think that their religion is about them. They, these are among the religious elite of their time. These are the pastors. These were men who, if you were to ask them, they would claim to be God. And if you were to ask them a question, man, of, of, of how good of a person they are, they are like, I am the best. I am a, a great person. And in regards to the external appearance, if you were to see these men, people would say, yeah, these are good people. But yet in their hearts, in all reality, they were dead men. And I think some of us, and we see our faith in the same way. You see, our faith in God comes out to be about us rather than about him. Our religion is, a, is about ourselves, so we become the focus of our faith. And so we clean up our act, and we try to have the appearance of, man, I'm a good person. And we like to write the story for ourselves and say, hey, I'm the good guy, and those people are the bad guy in the story. That's how we sometimes try to write the story. We make our faith more about self-preservation than about uh, transformation. And when rubber meets the road and Jesus comes to us and says, hey, the story's not about you, but it's about me. The focus is me in faith in me and following me. We start to make excuses for our thoughts and our behaviors and, and how we uh, conduct ourselves. But Jesus is saying, no, it, it's about me. And rather than uh, trusting him, the created one, the, the one who saves us, we trust ourselves and make all of this about ourselves. And, and that's what the religious authorities are doing here. They, they focused on themselves and they were willing to focus on themselves so much that they were willing to kill Jesus, an innocent man. And so when Pilate asked in verse 39 what their charge was, they gave him an answer, right? But it, it was kind of a sidestep of an answer. It was like, well, Man, would we bring somebody to you that wasn't guilty? Why would we waste our time? Why would we come to you if he wasn't guilty? And, and Pilate knew what was going on. He knew that something was going on with them. And so he tried to actually put it off on them, right? He, he tried to say, no, you try the guy. If, if you're the one saying that he's guilty, why don't you handle this? But here was the issue. Jesus' popularity among the Jews was pretty high at that time. And so if they were to try Jesus and kill Jesus, it would have actually messed up their mission in the first place. Because you can't get away with killing an innocent man that everyone loves, right? They wanted to take matters into their own hands, but they weren't willing to get their hands dirty in the process. They, were, they weren't willing to break some of their own laws or defile themselves from the human ritual's perspective, but they were willing to use the man's law in order to kill an innocent man. But we've got to answer the question, why was this so wrong? Why was it so wrong for them to, the religious leaders, to do this? Because personally, part, part of my heart says, man, if you didn't actually do the crime itself, why is it so wrong for me to be involved in this? Because technically they didn't do the wrong. Why would they get so much heat for what they're doing? And I say heat because in, in chapter 19, if you look in verse 11, Jesus says, He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. See, our, our sin tempts us to, to be fine with others sinning on our behalf as long as it's to our benefit. These are God's chosen people who are called out by God to reflect his glory, and yet they would use Pilate in his already sinful posture to accomplish their goals. For what? Comfort? power, control, their own glory. And I don't blame the religious in this because I'm one of them. 
I don't blame them for this because my desire to control and move things around and manipulate them to, to do my thing, I start to walk around with a means justifies the ends type of posture. I stop, meaning I stop caring sometimes about how it's going to sear my heart as long as we go ahead and get the goal accomplished. And so what I miss is I miss what the actual goal is, and that's to glorify God. Not the point of getting my own glory or getting my own uh, destiny figured out, but to glorify God and find my comfort, my joy, my completion in him. Interestingly enough, though, when we have our plans like this, the Lord also has a plan and it will be sought through. You will, we will see God's plans seen through, whether it be alongside of him, him in and through us, or if we're on the wrong side of his plan. In verse 32, it says that this was all a part of Jesus' plan all along. This was to fulfill what Jesus had spoken on how he was going to die. See, John is showing us that although these men had a a plan, God's plan is, they're playing right into God's plan all, all along. Caiaphas, the high priest, he knew that if he turned over Jesus to the Romans, that they would crucify him, right? And the Jewish law states that if you were hung on a tree, you are cursed by God. So this was the way they, they kind of forced the issue with their people. They said, man, if, if I turn Jesus in to be crucified and our people see him hung on a tree, well, they're no longer going to follow him. Because the Jews wouldn't follow a guilty man and, and they would come to the natural conclusion that Jesus himself was guilty because he was hung on a tree. He must be cursed by God. Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three says it this way, a hanged man on a tree is cursed by God. You see, the Jews would not follow a man that was hung on a tree, and so Caiaphas and the other religious leaders had a great plan to say, hey, if we get this dude hung, no one else is going to follow him. The guilty hands of these men charged Jesus, the innocent Savior, to save them from earthly humiliation. What they didn't know is that they they had always, it had always, what they didn't know is that it had always been a part of God's plan. To, for that innocent man to die for their guilty hands that charged him. My first point is religious hands charged an innocent man. My second one is the innocent plea of our king for a guilty verdict. We're going to pick it up in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, Pilate's in a tough spot right now. He's already on thin ice with, as a governor with the Romans because of some mistakes that he made early on in his career. Luke 13, 1 uh, alludes to this incident where, where Pilate actually kills a group of Galileans who were uh, doing ceremonial sacrifices, and so their blood was spilled on other sacrifices. It was just this brutal mess that was taking place. And so he had offended them, the Jews, but then he also, he, he greatly offended the Romans because there was a bunch of riots that had gone on that he couldn't contain within his oversight. And so he had this thing going on where he was hated by the Jews, and the Romans questioned his leadership ability. And so by this point, this dude was under a lot of pressure. 
He, he couldn't handle another riot taking place. If so, he would, he would probably lose his job and it would wreck his reputation. So these Jewish leaders, they took advantage of that. That was an opportunity for them to, to shame Pilate's name and, and actually cause his fail, the failing of his career. Uh, they even mentioned it actually in verse, nine, or verse 12 of chapter 19. They basically said, if you don't kill this guy, we're going to ruin you. You're not a friend of Caesar's if you don't kill him. So, so basically, if you don't kill Jesus, we will ruin your career. Now, let's not feel too bad for Pilate, okay? Both him and Jesus knew that he was being manipulated, which is why after Pilate asked the question of, are you a king, Jesus responded in verse 34 with a question. He said, did you come up with that on your own, or did somebody tell you that? Because Jesus knew what the real charge was. He knew that the Jews were actually charging him for blasphemy, not for being a king. They were charging him because he claimed to be God. And so Pilate wasn't a religious man in the midst of all this. Which is why, even in verse 35, you see this snarky remark, am I a Jew? If they could charge Jesus with claiming to be king, he would have to be crucified. In the, in the time of the Romans, if anyone claimed to be king, they were killed. Because there could only be one king, and that's Caesar. But here's why this matters. While the Jews and Pilate were fighting for their own kingdom on earth as their human kingdom, they had the king of kings standing right before them. And and as Pilate asked Jesus if he was a king, Jesus responded to him. He's like, well, yeah, but also no. When he said this in verse 36, here, here, let me read it to you. Verse 36 says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So he's like, yes, I am a king, but not the kind of king that you're talking about. Jesus confessed to being a king, but not the king that every person on earth would have looked for. You see, we like to be led as long as that leader does what we like, right? If, if they support our causes or our agendas, that's the kind of leader we like to be led by. Which, let's be honest, that's, that's not a leader, that's not a king at all, if that's the case. So bringing that up to us today, we want to be our own king. We want to rule our own universe. We don't want a heavenly king. We want Burger King. We want it our way, right? We don't, we don't want what's best for us, but what's fast and easy, what gives us the most pleasure right here and right now. All of us can resonate with that reality. Now, it might not be every aspect of your life, but there is a form of our life that can resonate with that. So I want to ask the question, where do you not allow or have a hard time allowing Jesus to have rule and reign in your life? Is it your marriage? In, in, in marriage, we seem to think that, man, if I put in enough time, if I do or accomplish enough honey-do list, then all of a sudden, there's going to be this switch that says, man, I don't have to work for it anymore. Like, my marriage should be easy and just kind of coast on until the day I die, which is a false dichotomy, right? If Jesus truly saved your life and he rules and reigns in your marriage, that means you and your spouse are going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind into the image of the son Jesus, right? And so if that's happening from the day that you, you meet your spouse and the day that you guys get married together, well, that's going to continue on until the day that you meet your king. Does he have rule and reign in your marriage? What about your kids? Uh-oh. Does Jesus have rule and reign of how, you, how your kids' activities and how you discipline them? If you were to look at the activities that your kids are involved in, does it display that God has rule and reign over those activities? 
Or does it show your ambitions toward your kid being the next Kevin Durant or a doctor? Or, or what about discipline in shepherding our kids? Does it show that he rules and reigns there? Like the, the hardest lesson that I had to learn as a parent this year is the fact that if Jesus, in the midst of all of my sin, and I mean all my sin that I do, his natural posture toward me is love, grace, and mercy, how much more should I reciprocate that love, grace, and mercy when my kids sin? Are we creating religious rule followers or followers of Jesus? What about your finances? Do your finances reflect that your treasure's in heaven? Here's what I mean by that. If Jesus Christ really did die and he really did raise from the grave and and you're able, if you've trusted in that, to pass from true spiritual death to spiritual life, if that is true, does your bank statement reflect that? When you calculate your budget, does it reflect that the gospel of Jesus Christ is going forth into the world and that is the best investment of your finances? But here's how it often happens, right? We, we, we look at our budget, if we have a budget, that is, and we, we see our expenses and we figure it all out and we make sure that we don't foreclose on our house and we do pay our rent. I mean, think about it. What are the biggest things that you have on auto pay right now, right? It's your mortgage, it's utilities, it's cable, it's internet, because you don't want to go without those things. You don't want to go one day without lights on, right? Because those things are so important to us. You're committed to them. Are you committed to regularly and generously giving to God and his local mission, the church? If we're committed and if we're in, invested in a local body, it shouldn't even be a question. Internet Nebraska closed down and people went a day without internet and all of a sudden the whole city looked like it was going to go into a riot, right? Like people were scared, like I'm not going to have internet today. How am I going to watch Netflix, right? So, so if, what if we... What if we, if the the bank draft didn't go through one month toward the church, we freaked out like that? Jesus wants to be involved in the process of where your money's going, not because he wants to, 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 he needs your money, but because he wants to be king of those finances. He wants to rule and reign in every aspect of our life, not just one of them. And if your knee jerk when we're talking about that is, it's mine, I earned it. I'm going to hold on to that because I worked for that. If that's your knee jerk, can I press in just a little bit? Who gave you your hands? Who gave you your mind? Who gave you your health? I'm going to approach you like Jesus, God approached Job. He said, you didn't do it, I did. Right? God created you. God gave you your health. He gave you your arms. And as a child of God, he's given you the opportunity, not the obligation, the opportunity to conform every aspect of your life to his kingdom and not the world's kingdom. The world's king and kingdom would have fought for Jesus here, but instead Jesus, as he says in 36, gave his life away. But instead, this is what happened. Pilate was given some of the most profound news in the world, and yet he held on to his status. He wanted to have his own reign in life, and Pilate, like some of us, what what he ends up doing, he didn't want to wrestle with the true reality that was standing in front of him. That's, That's what Jesus came for. In verse 37, this is what Jesus explains. You say that I am a king for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is the truth. Now let's explain that. 
When you think of truth, you usually equate that to facts, right? So, so for instance, the grass is green, the sky is blue, that paint's gray, Austin's short. Like, those are facts, right? Those are realities. That's what we usually look at with truth. If you're new here, we make fun of his height all the time. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> however, when Jesus proclaims that he has come to bear witness of the truth, here's what he's saying. He's saying that it's the most important, the quintessential, the apex of what is true, and that's what he's come to proclaim. Essentially, there is no other truth on the planet that is necessary apart or matters apart from this truth that he's bringing. And Pilate asked the question of, what is truth, and walks away. He doesn't even wait for the answer to the question when he was, the truth was standing right before him. And like Pilate, you can choose to ignore and say, what is truth? You can make up your own religious idea, or you can choose to accept the most important reality for all men, that Jesus himself is that truth that you need. You can know him. You can know Jesus. He is speaking to you right now. He's pursuing your heart. But these people in our story here, they didn't want to listen to truth. Instead, they wanted to kill truth. My second point is the innocent plea of a king for a guilty verdict. Our innocent king gave his plea and was found guilty. But why? How? My third point is an innocent savior exchanged for a guilty sinner. Going to pick it up in verse 38b. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do what you want me to, to do. You want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Now, at this point, Pilate knows that he's being played, but he comes up with this plan, right? He's like, Ah. I know how I can, I can get rid of this problem. I'll, I'll, I'll give them a softball. Because they had a tradition, basically every Passover, they would release a political prisoner of the Jews to kind of basically gain some credibility with them. And so his softball pitch goes, and it's an easy one, right? Like, he's like, man, this is an easy one for you guys. He offers them the opportunity to take a vicious murderer, an insurrectionist, and exchange him for the innocent carpenter that was standing before him. Barabbas hurt people, Jesus healed people. Barabbas pushed and forced his agenda forward while Jesus peacefully spoke to anyone that would listen. Barabbas was guilty by both Jewish law and Roman law, and Jesus was the, most, the only innocent man to ever walk the earth. And they got to choose between Barabbas and Jesus. It seems so clear. And what did they choose? Barabbas. This is perhaps the clearest picture in the entire Gospel of John of what this whole thing's about. Barabbas is a bad man. He's a rebel. Jesus is the embodiment of innocence. Jesus will die. Barabbas will go free. Think about it this way. Barabbas, sitting in his cell, thinking, I'm going to die today. At, by that time the end of the day comes, I'm going to die. But instead, dude was chilling with his homies having dinner that evening. And yet Jesus, an innocent man was hung on a cross in his place. There were three men who had committed crimes and three crosses that were waiting for them, but only two of them were guilty when it came down to the end of the day. Barabbas probably had a, a massive party on the darkest day of history. And I don't blame him for it. The day that Jesus, the perfect man, Jesus, God in flesh, died, but he died in Barabbas' place. I don't blame Barabbas because... 
I am Barabbas. Like Barabbas, I rebel against Jesus. I want to rule and reign my life. Like Barabbas, I push forward my agenda over his. Like Barabbas, Barabbas I'm commi- I've committed great sins against a holy God. And I, in that, deserve God's punishment of eternal hell. I deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. Barabbas was a thief, as our text says. There were two thieves in the Garden of Eden, too, wasn't there? Adam and Eve. They go to the the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they steal the fruit. If you look at the Ten Commandments, Morality 101, they actually have their place in, in theft if you break them. You're stealing the glory due God and his name. We steal our parents' honor. We steal our neighbor's reputation, possessions, spouse, or even trust. And maybe we don't do that physically, but but in our hearts, we might covet their possessions and want for them. All of us have broken God's law in reality or in our hearts. And so like Barabbas, we're thieves. You are Barabbas too. You see, we, we all deserve the same punishment. We all deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. We all sin and fall short of God's perfect and holy standard. But he made a way, right? In verse 11, Jesus has a statement to Peter after Peter cuts off a dude's ear. And he says this, he says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, the cup in the Old Testament was a picture of God's wrath. If you look in Isaiah 51, 17, it says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Now, the cup that Jesus is talking about is this very cup, the cup of God's wrath and judgment. Pastor J.D. Greer from North Carolina puts it this way. He says, Jesus has just talked to God about this cup in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, there Jesus had said, let this cup pass from me. The cup was so overwhelming that it made him stagger like Isaiah 51 just said. It knocked him on his face. Just staring into, into it made the capillaries in his face burst and he sweat great drops of blood. That's the weight of the cup of wrath that God is talking about here. I remember when I, I, I first trusted Jesus for salvation. I watched The Passion of the Christ for the first time. Remember that movie, right? And as I'm watching it, I'm looking at this scene right here that we're talking about. I'm watching this scene, and, and I, I all of a sudden just get this rage in my bones. I'm just so angry because I see the Jews, they give Jesus over to the Romans. I'm like, he didn't do anything. Why did they do that? And then I see the, the Romans take him, and they beat him, and they hang him on a cross, and I'm so angry. I'm sitting there just so tense, ready to go out and fight somebody. I'm just mad. And then I realized what was happening, and I started to weep. I started to cry because I realized that my sin put him there. His love took him to the cross, but my sin put the nails in his hands. Your sin is what put Jesus on the cross, but he chose to drink the cup. He chose to take it upon himself, our guilt and shame. He took our rightful sentence, though he was innocent, and he did it willingly. He gave Pilate the authority to convict him of a crime he didn't commit. Look at chapter 19, verse 11. Jesus says this, You would have no authority over me 
at all unless it had been given to you from above. Why would he do that? Why would he let him do that? Why would Jesus, the innocent and holy God of the universe, choose to take a punishment he didn't deserve? Because he loves you and me so deeply. Extreme, I mean, I mean, this isn't a game to be played to say, hey, I'm going to try to be the best person I can be so I can appease God and go to heaven. We just saw how that works out, right? We just saw these extremely religious men, when they're left to their own volitions without the Savior, charge the Savior for guilt. Being a more religious person doesn't absolve us from guilt. It doesn't help. We just saw the pursuit of comfort and power and control, and it still doesn't absolve us from the guilt of leading the one that loves us to death. No. There's no other substitute. The only thing that is enough is that Christ substituted his innocent life for our guilty one. Listen, how absurd would it have been if Barabbas said, you know what, Jesus? Nah, you take it. Uh, you, you stay free, and I'll go and pay for my crimes myself. Like, it would, it would have been ridiculous for him to reject such a gift. But that's what some of us do. Some of us are doing that right now in this moment. If you place your faith in Jesus, you are completely and eternally innocent. Yet, in those moments when we, we, would, we would turn around a little bit and say, you know what, God, I'm going to work for it myself. I'm going to do it myself. In those moments, we're basically saying, God, I don't need your gift. I don't want your gift. I'll pay for my crimes myself. Let me try to be good enough, Jesus. So for the believer in the room, let me give you an application for this section. Enjoy the freedom of your innocence. Honor Jesus and live with joy as a person that has escaped the death penalty by God's grace. And for the person in the room that hasn't placed their faith in Jesus, you are Barabbas. And you have a choice. You have a choice to accept the gift of substitution like Barabbas did, or you can stubbornly refuse the gift and try to pay for your sins yourself. But I'm begging you right now, let Jesus be your substitute. Let him pay for it for you. Let him take your guilt and your shame and your death so that you can receive his innocence, his love, his mercy, his grace, his life. In a moment, we're going to take communion like we typically do every other week. But can I just plead with you for one second? Don't let this just be another religious experience. Don't let this be just another opportunity to show everybody in the room that you're a good person and you know how to drink juice and eat crackers. Please, please, please let this be the reminder that it is. A reminder that if you've trusted in Jesus alone to absolve you of your guilt before a holy God, this is a reminder that Jesus has exchanged his innocent life for your guilty one. Let it be about that. Let's pray.